Hi, welcome to the Recalculating Life podcast, helping you navigate the detours of life. I'm your host, Vijay Arora. I interview professionals of various careers to provide insight into their work experiences, education, lifestyle, and more, as well as discussing important topics in life. Discover your interests and aspirations with your host, Vijay Arora. Hi, Vijay. Hi, Mr. Cohen. Thank you for speaking to me today. Oh, I'm happy, sir. How are you? I'm good, too. How are good. you? Oh, I'm pretty good. Uh, you know, just uh, staying busy with stuff. Um, but things are going pretty good. How's, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I have lots of school stuff, college applications, cross-country practice. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess this is a perfect uh, uh, sport for the pandemic, cross-country yeah, you don't really need anyone to train with. I'm still having practice, but it's like a distanced practice, and we wear masks when we're near each other. How how is teaching during COVID? I, you know, it's pretty good. I kind of liken it to um, having a radio show. It's more like having a radio show. Like you have callers, you know. Yeah. So it's calling from Beijing, <laughs> and then it's almost like being a DJ a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of just kind of take calls. You have a little conversation every now and then and um, have a few skits. So it's, it's, a kind of, it's an interesting format. I actually kind of like it. I actually kind of like it. Now, what grade are you in? I'm a senior in high school. Oh, wow. Are you applying to, that's my daughter's a senior as well. Yeah. I'm Where, are you applying to college? Yeah. I, I submitted my UC application about two weeks ago and then I'm doing my all my common applications for the private colleges right now okay great where you where's what's your what school do you what's your dream school um my top two schools are stanford and yale oh yeah those are good ones yeah those because stanford i've just always liked stanford and i went to a pre-collegiate camp there last summer for legal studies and then Yale has a really cool um, EPE program. It's called Economics, Politics, and Ethics, which oh. I'm really interested in. It's like that's a Economics, poli- wow! That, I even know they have that. That's really cool. That's at Yale. Yeah. And um, I, wow, that's cool. Economics, politics, and ethics in ethics when did they start that program because I, I taught at Yale for a little bit I don't remember that being there while I was there I think it's been there for a bit um I know at um UPenn they also have a similar program of politics philosophy and economics so I think a lot of schools are starting to do that because they've noticed that kids or students coming in like all three of those things together and yes. they're kind of intertwined so yeah I think so I heard an economic economist talk on um, some podcast and someone asked him, uh, what's the purpose of economics? And, and he had such an interesting answer. He said the purpose of economics was to prevent violence. I guess in a way that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the idea was if, if you have a good economic system, you prevent bloody revolution. (laughs) So you know, so that means economics is about kind of maintaining, uh, you know, the study of the, the distribution of goods and services, mm-hmm. but equity and, and equity and equality 
uh, become super important considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, ethics become really important to consider, not just because it's like a, a moral good unto itself, but because that way wealthy people won't get killed. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that's pretty interesting. Like French Revolution type things. Yeah. So like taxes, taxes are actually a way to prevent bloodshed. At least, you know, if, if properly, you know, if, if proper, if regulations and taxes are properly structured, then, you know, it can be a way to, uh, a pressure valve for the frustrations of uh, class warfare. So why did you choose to go into teaching psychology and learning about it and researching it? Yeah. Well, you know, I was, um, I, I, I was uh, just interested in everything. Um, so I had sort of very broad interests. Um, I, I was I wanted to be a writer and study literature, um, and then um, I also got into psychology in college. Um, and uh, and so I, I wanted a, I wanted to study something where it could be kind of like a hub. You know, I could study everything from it. And social psychology really fit the bill because it was a. Um, because it relates to so much, uh, almost everything. Uh, it, it's the study of how people think and feel about the situations that they're in, uh, including other people. Um, and so that just relates to almost everything, economics, political science, um, stress and biology, humanities, literature. Um, so I, I, I kind of wanted, I, I never liked to kind of um, corner myself, hem myself in. Um, so I, I really just kind of wanted something that, you know, would enable me to kind of continue to uh, have a lot of freedom in what I studied. And, and to this day, I'm, I feel like that was a really good choice for me because I, 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 I really like to just kind of almost take this sort of honeybee approach where just kind of flip from topic to topic and, and follow what's interesting to me. Um, so, um, so that's why I like it. I, that's why I like it. I think other fields are probably like that too. I mean, to some extent, economics is increasingly like that. Anthropology is very much like that. Uh, maybe sociology. Yeah. Um, so that was my that was my thinking, and I and I just I just enjoyed it. I just enjoyed it. I find myself in a similar situation where I just want to. There are certain subjects I just want to learn everything about all these different subjects like psychology, sociology, political science, economics, philosophy, but I can only choose one or two things. Yeah, I've kind of I've settled on economics as my hub because it's what I'm most interested in. And it seems like psychology does give you a lot of like places to branch off because on your profile, it's like has your research interests seem to cover a lot of subjects. So like what? what do you research exactly? Like it says diversity and identity, motivation, poverty, mm-hmm. and equality. So like, what do you delve into, into those specific topics with, from, from yeah. psychology? Um, a lot of my research has to do with self and how people maintain a sense of self-regard, especially in threatening situations. And so I look at that in all kinds of contexts, like maybe it might be like a, a kid who feels like they don't belong in school, um, dealing with, um, social uh, disapproval or social humi- humiliation. It might be a kid who's, uh, or a person who's uh, like an African-American working in a, in a setting where they feel like they're being negatively stereotyped. So I'm, I'm just generally interested in how people deal with threatening situations, um, the situations of threat, which is kind of uh, very much a, uh, just part of the human dilemma in so many spheres. Like, you know, how do I, 
I mean, I, I feel like that's like increasingly being shown in biology too, human biology, that uh, people can kind of approach the world with a kind of, you know, a sense of safety, um, like things will be okay, or a sense of threat, like I need to be vigilant and on guard. You know, it's almost like two, two general switches uh, that we have. And, um, um, and so, uh, so that's, a, that's the general general topic that I'm interested in. It kind of cuts across many domains. But I got to say, you know, for me, I've never been much of a planner. I, I've never really, you know, set that out as what I wanted to study. That's kind of post hoc. And I think it's only really uh, pretty recently that, you know, I can kind of have that, um, that theme, um, apply that theme. So I don't know, that's one of the things it's kind of everyone has to choose their own path. But one of the things that I, I found to be really helpful to me was I, I never really narrowed very soon. I, I mean, I only went to psychology. I mean, I think I studied psychology. I was always doing research in psychology in my freshman year of college and then beyond, but I was always um, studying other things, taking other courses that interested me. Um, you know, like Steve Jobs has that story of, you know, he took a calligraphy course, right? And then it turned out that taking that calligraphy course is hugely influential. And that's why we have all those crazy fonts in Mm -hmm. in Apple and Word. Um, so you just never know what's going to be useful. And so I, I, I've come to increasingly believe in the, in the power of ser serendipity that, you know, like kind of life is like a dream. And you're just trying to make sense of it. So you got to wander into these random places like, oh, there's that literature course uh, on, um, you know, magical realism. For some reason that calls to me, I'm going to take it. Or, um, a computer science course for some reason I'm kind of interested in that and you never quite know how these like puzzle pieces will fit together um and i think um and i think that's really okay i i feel as though with the students that i i've taught the college students i've taught that there's too much of a of a desire for two things one is to um actually one thing one is that there's too much careerism they they just want a good career and um and it's very limiting and narrowing uh Whereas I think what often happens as you uh, make your way through, at least what happened to me, I'll just speak for myself. What happens is you, you kind of delve into different areas and then, um, and then it's almost like dream interpretation. Like how does it all fit together? Um, and, and what you end up doing is almost kind of creating your own discipline in the end. So in your case, you might study something like economics and you might take a, a course in other areas like ethics, it sounds like philosophy. And you might, for you, create a kind of field of study that no one else is, is studying, right? Versus if you go deep into one thing like economics, that's what everyone's doing. But if you go deep into kind of try to explore the, the kind of sort of overlapping sectors of different disciplines like philosophy and economics and maybe even art, you can actually discover, you can really kind of create your own zone. And I think that's that's where a lot of the, the fruit lies. So, you know, one thing is just, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like that kind of having a state of openness is really useful and, and it's much more enjoyable, much more enjoyable. Uh, college, by the way, is like, yeah, the one time in your life where you get to kind of just, it's like a candy store, just explore so many things and, and um, not have to worry about pleasing a boss, <laughs> unless you go into academia, but then you have to please your advisor. Um, so, uh, I don't know. So that, that's kind of, th those are my kind of thoughts off the cuff. 
Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, you kind of create your own, uh, your own, your own endeavor by combining idiosyncratic interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited about college and being able to choose what I want to learn because I've been good at learning throughout high school, but none of it's really interested me until this year right now when I'm taking government and politics and then economics as well. And I'm also taking psychology and those classes I'm actually interested in. I found myself like having more drive and motivation to do those things and being able to explore that in college seems really fun and like I'll actually enjoy learning. Yeah. Well, why is it interesting to you while the other subjects were not? well I've well I feel like school is too rigid in a sense like it's too cut and dry and this is what you have to do to get here and I just economics and politics I've come to be interested in these not past few months but this past year I've really gotten into and I've found myself having this curiosity that I've never had before with these subjects and it's sort of stemmed from volunteering at like different temporary shelters, raising money for stuff. I've noticed sort of the inequality that you touched on because I recognize that I have a level of privilege that many do not. And while I'm not going to feel bad for that, I, because I'm not going to feel bad for that because I can't control it. But in that, in that same regard, I also have to recognize that other people can't control where they are. And I don't think it's fair that, just because I was born into a family with money, I have more opportunity than those other kids. And they didn't have a choice what family they were born into. And that kind of brought me to economics and politics to understand society and like the underpinnings of it and how, why we have the problems we have with the issues we have and kind of what can be done to remedy them. Yeah, that's, a, that's great. That, that's great. I mean, having a sense of social responsibility is really, really important. I like my dad used to say, you know, if you if you're you're lucky, you can kind of make a living doing something that you really love. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of listening to that, that inner muse you have where it's just like, you know, this this is kind of interesting to me. I don't. And oftentimes you just don't know why you just kind of mm -hmm. get into it. And I, I really think that's OK. Just kind of follow your bliss, I think, is what the uh, that mythologist uh, Joseph Campbell used to say. Follow your bliss. Just whatever. Whatever grabs you, go for it. That's something my mom would say. <laughs> yeah, she's probably pretty wise, if I remember. Yeah. She's very spiritual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you might listen to that. I always thought that was pretty good. Um, I listened to this when I was younger, too. Do you know the power of myth, Joseph Campbell? No, I do not. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good one, pre-college material for kind of finding what you want to do, figuring yourself out. I think it's on audio, Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. It's an interview with Joseph Campbell uh, by Bill Moyers. And they're just talking about myth and it's, its relevance for how you lead a life. Mm -hmm. I thought it was great. It really spoke to me when I read it. That's another thing, like reading. Um, that's how I re actually realized that I was so interested in these topics. I've always hated reading, especially in the school system when they force you to read stuff. But now I find myself surrounded by books that I've bought for myself. Granted, I can't, I don't have time to read them right now because I have a lot of school and college applications, but yeah, 
found myself just reading books upon books about politics and economics and philosophy and just actually use, using college to study that and having that be what I'm focused on just sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You just, yeah, you, you kind of, uh, yeah. There, and you don't even have to read the whole thing, I think. I, yeah. Sometimes I find just kind of serendipitously reading through books. It's kind of like, you know, you just leaf through a section and something will grab you and stick with you. Um, so like touching on that subject of inequality, I was looking at your publications and one of them caught my eye and I think you touched on it um, in when you're talking about inequality, like it's called the a brief social belonging um, yeah. intervention. It was in the science advances journal. So like, I was wondering like what exactly that was about and the research you did and what conclusion you came to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a study that I did with uh, a graduate student named Greg Walton. And he and I were interested in the, in the racial achievement gap in college. And uh, the, the, that's the, the gap between uh, African-Americans and Latino Americans on the one hand and white and Asian students on the other, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty persistent across all schools throughout America. Uh, and so we were interested in one potential cause of that achievement gap. And we hypothesized that one cause of the achievement gap was this phenomenon that we called belonging uncertainty. And belonging uncertainty is a kind of state of mind that you experience when you're in a situation where you're uncertain if you belong. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty much it. And we all experience belonging uncertainty. Like you might you know, go to a party and you don't really know anyone there. And you're kind of wondering if they want you there. That's an example. Or you might be starting a job and um, wondering if you can cut it there or if people kind of believe in you and think you can do it, cut it. Uh, that's also a state of, that's also belonging uncertainty. We, can, we tend to experience it in these, in these domains where we're just not sure how people see us and if we're accepted. Uh, kids in middle school and high school experiences all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so what we uh, thought was that for ethnic minority students, belonging uncertainty might be higher in college uh, because they're, they're subjected to negative stereotypes about their intellectual ability. Uh, African-Americans, Latino-Americans are uh, negatively stereotyped for their intellectual abilities. And so for that reason, um, in these kind of everyday situations where something happens, like maybe someone frowns at you or your, your instructor gives you a little negative feedback or your friends go out without you for dinner, um, the stereotype makes it more plausible that, well, maybe it's because other people don't like me or are excluding me based on my race. So that's the idea. That was the idea. Belonging uncertainty is this kind of um, state of mind. We were uncertain about our, our sense of belonging. It might be more severe for people who are laboring under a negative stereotype. And, uh, you know, as you know, or as we all know, I think when you're in the state of belonging uncertainty, it's really hard to focus mm -hmm. and really hard to concentrate. And your like attention is divided. So, um, um, uh, so it can really impair your performance and motivation. Um, so uh, what, what Greg and I did was to uh, do an experiment where 
we brought in African-American students into school, into our laboratory and, and gave them a brief intervention that we thought would help to alleviate some of their belonging uncertainty. And the intervention boiled down to pretty much just presenting them with stories from upperclassmen at their school, including white students, who just, you know, the stories they told were just like, yeah, when I came to college, it was really hard and I felt like I didn't belong, but with time, things get better. Uh, and we just had them read these stories, real stories from upperclassmen at, the school, at their schools. And the idea was that by hearing those stories, uh, African-American freshmen would kind of understand, okay, well, if I'm feeling this way, if I'm feeling uncertain about my belonging, it might not be just me who feels yeah. this way. And it might not be something about me or about my race. It might just be a kind of general thing about the situation of, you know, trying to cut it here in this, in this place. And, and, and things will probably get better. Things will probably get better. Um, and, um, uh, um, and so that was it. It was pretty, it was like an hour intervention. We had people kind of read the stories and write about them. And then what we did was, uh, this was about got 15 years ago, I think uh, we had, we looked at their grades and we found that the African-Americans who got the, who were exposed to those stories got better grades in school, uh, in college. Mm -hmm. And uh, we weren't expecting this, but we thought, hey, why don't we just watch them throughout their career in college? And we found that even four years later, uh, they continue to get, get a better grades in school. The African-Americans who, who received that intervention uh, ended up getting higher cumulative GPAs in, school, in, at, at, in college than did African-Americans randomly assigned to the control group. Mm -hmm. um, and we were just surprised that the effects were so long lasting. Um, and then just recently with the help of another graduate student, Shannon Brady, uh, we tracked down all these student participants who had taken part in our study and just inquired on how they were doing. We had them fill out a follow-up survey. This was a few years after they had graduated. And what we found is that the people who had gotten those stories very early in their college career uh, had happier careers. Uh, they, were, they, they had higher levels of well-being, reported being happier in their career, uh, lower levels of burnout. Uh, so it seemed like this little moment uh, in their freshman year where they, they kind of got some... Um, a kind of new lens for looking at the experience of college had these long range effects. It was like kind of almost like a domino effect that it just kind of continued downstream. It continued down through time for a much longer period than any of us had, had expected. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of research that we do. And, uh, and one of the reasons it's gotten so much coverage is just because of this sort of surprising fact that this small thing could have such um, long lasting consequences Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it makes sense to me how doing some, like, something like that could have such a long-lasting positive effect, kind of like a positive feedback loop because college is such a critical time yeah. for that development and it sets the foundation for your career and everything that progresses after that. But the root cause of it, it could be because, because of systemic issues that you kind of mentioned where you see those Hispanic and Black or African-American groups at lower levels or lower, like just systemically at a lower level. So what do you, what, what do you think could be done to help that like at the root cause, like a widespread version of this or some type mm -hmm. of 
affirmative action or something else? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, there, it's basically a problem, I think, of inclusion. And it, it's about how to, how to design society, craft society and situations and institutions uh, in ways that foster inclusion. And any number of strategies can be helpful for that. Uh, affirmative action, high, putting minorities uh, in positions of influence and leadership, uh, reducing, you know, of course, eliminating discrimination and racism, uh, fighting implicit bias, mm-hmm. uh, and, and dealing just also just with the kind of inequities in schooling, for sure. For sure, that's a huge issue. Uh, just inequities. I mean, I think the big problem in America right now is uh, uh, just inequities. As you were saying, in, in, in the place that you're born have, have, have so much impact. You know, if you're born in, in San Jose, your life prospects are much better. San Jose, California, uh, in the lower income bracket, your, your life prospects are so much better than they are if you're born in Atlanta, Georgia and you're in the lower income bracket. Uh, the places uh, throughout the country differ in the degree to which they support uh, people who are, who are on the outside or the outskirts of society rising up and kind of improving their, their living standards. And, um, and there's lots of reasons why. Uh, places like San Jose, California have a lot more kind of social programs uh, to help people, job training programs to help people, um, a lot more integration, a lot more kind of uh, opportunities for social capital, kind of connecting across racial lines. Um, so I think, you know, there's probably a lot of things that we can do in society to kind of change the, change the situation that we're in, the system that we're in to make it more hospitable to uh, people who are, who are on the outside. And that includes also economic policies, like, you know, kind of going back to economics, right? Yeah. I just read this good book called The Economics of Belonging. Actually, it's pretty good. Um, and uh, it's all about this, that how economics, you know, policies can create, um, economic policies can, can help people to feel like full participants in society. It's actually mm-hmm. a really good book. The Economics of Belonging. So it's not just about, yeah. Um, so is that uh, research connected to a different research you did um, about discipline citations and targeted identity safety interventions? Because it seems somewhat similar in the type of research you were doing. Like, yeah. 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 It's so, all the case. I mean, I think they're all about kind of making, helping people to feel like there's a better fit between them and their social situation and, um, and kind of doing that. Like usually what we think is that we have to, people have to kind of change themselves to fit in. Uh, but I think a lot of the research is suggesting, you know, there's things we can do to change the situation to make it more porous, yeah. more inclusive for everyone. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that might be one frame. I'm kind of just thinking aloud here, but you know, one frame for this is, yeah, I mean, for so long, America has had this, um, this uh, philosophy of you have to assimilate, right? So like what we're talking about is kind of accommodating the system in ways that promote diversity and equality. And what, so you could ask kind of, you know, at every single level, 
how can I change the situation to create more inclusion, to create more equality? And that can be at the level of the teacher-student interaction. What can I do as a teacher in a classroom to give feedback better across racial lines, you know, to create a more equitable classroom? What can I do to teach differently rather than just demanding that everyone reach my standard? Um, uh, it could be at the level of a school, um, the policies of a school, the level of a company or an organization, uh, diversity policies make a big difference. Child leave policies make a big difference. Uh, harassment policies make a big difference. Um, and then it could be also at the level of economic policy. Uh, so kind of at all levels, we can be thinking about what can we alter? What are the levers we can pull to create a more, um, uh, to create belonging? To create real and perceived belonging, and I, I guess that's one of the one of the key issues too is that um, the, there's a there's the reality of whether people truly belong, but there's also the perception, and sometimes the two can be quite different. Uh, you know, there might be true equality. This might be a place where the teacher is not biased against me, uh, but it may not be perceived that way by the kids in it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so whatever we do whatever levers we're, we're pulling, we also have to be thinking about psychology, like how people are perceiving the environment they're in. And, um, and many times they're not perceiving it the way, we, the way we are. You seem to have like your interest in psychology stem into a bunch of different subjects. So like how does, like especially economics and politics, like we're discussing, how does your profession and the research you do influence your views on those things in different social issues and political issues? I think it, it ultimately gives you much more empathy. Yeah. Ultimately, and much more empathy. Like you just understand that uh, a lot of times, most of the time, um, there, there is a, a rationale for what people are, are doing. Uh, most of the time, people are doing the best they can, given the situation as they see it. And so, um, uh, and so a lot of our task is to, 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 work, um, to work backwards and try to understand the situation when we're kind of confronted with, God, why is, like even Donald Trump, why the hell is Donald Trump acting that way? Like I even, I even have empathy for him, like thinking, what is it, what is he, how is he seeing this situation? Now, most people, when confronted with behavior, they find baffling or evil or awful, commit what's known as the fundamental attribution error. They think, oh, this is because of their character or something inside of them, some like demonic personality trait. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think what we have kind of social psychology emphasizes is that a lot of times it's not that. It's, it's, they're dealing with some situation and the situation could be, you know, could be a real situation that they're dealing with. Maybe there's something going on in their lives that we, we just don't see. Or it could be something about how they're perceiving the situation that we just don't fathom. Like, you know, there might be something there that that is triggering someone in a weird way that um, is setting them off. Um, so I think ultimately the, the big lesson is is um, empathy. I, actually, I came up, I was writing a book. I had like three lessons. One is um, empathy. Ah, empathy, the importance of ep empathy, the importance of humility because that's the lesson of science, social science especially, is that most of the time we don't know, <laughs> right? Like most of human behavior 
contrary to what many science, social scientists will say, is actually unexplained. You can't predict it. So that means humility is really important. And then um, uh, the third is the importance of communication. Given that we don't know, most of the time we don't know, it's really important to communicate and try to understand the perspective from the point of view that uh, another person, uh, it, by asking them. So within politics, like I like you kind of talked about Donald Trump and like trying to see like what is what does he think like where does he get his opinions from based on what thinking and like I kind of try to think about that when I'm thinking about people with opposing views like people who are more right leaning or more conservative yeah they'd have the idea of oh these people are in a bad situation they should just work harder pull themselves up by the bootstrap and it that ideology or that viewpoint lacks the empathy that you're talking about so how would you address someone or like talk to someone who thinks like that and try to make them see someone else's position well it depends on your goal right i mean if you want to change them um right there's you could i you could at least you could have at least two goals there's probably a few right uh, one goal might be you just want to set new norms. You want to broadcast that this is intolerable behavior. In that case, then kind of, you know, condemning them might have a place in a time. Like if someone's like a true anti-Semite or xenophobe, coming down hard on that in public, it, it's going to be hard on them. But it could sort of send a message that this is not this is not acceptable. Um, on the other hand, if our goal is changing people's hearts and minds, um, uh, especially the people who have those attitudes, then I think, yeah, empathy and listening is the only way to go. That's the only path. Uh, there's a lot of research on uh, how to change white supremacists now and make them nice people. And basically boils down to that. You kind of listen, affirm them, make them feel like they're accepted, and but also challenge them. Ask lots of kind of Socratic questions. Like, well, why do you think of that? Where'd you find it? Mm-hmm. You know, have you met any Jewish people? Um, you know, and if and if you're not, uh, uh, you know, like, what do you think about it? I mean, you know, kind of being, having prejudices, you know, that can be really hard. Have you ever experienced a time when you were unfairly treated because of something different about you? How did that feel to you? And you kind of kind of get people to kind of connect their humanity to the issue. Uh, and it's almost never through facts and arguments that that happens. Yeah. Never. never. Uh, oh, it was once in a while. I mean, they, they play some role, but it's always through a connection with a person, uh, feeling, helping them to feel the humanity of an issue, maybe in their own lives, connecting it, hearing stories, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, so I, I, I think that these kind of hard conversations are kind of interesting. You just got to kind of hang in there and have a growth mindset, have a growth mindset that um, uh, people will change, a belief that people will change um, or can change, although it's often not at the pace that you want. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times you can't. I had a college roommate who was like a big homophobe. He actually changed with time, um, but it was really unreasonable of me to expect that he would change as a result of a single conversation or even a few conversations. Because a lot of times these attitudes are kind of, they're, they're commitments we have to our social groups. And it's not like I'm gonna give that up 
as a result of a single conversation. It's going to be something that takes time. Um, so I think doing that kind of thing could be helpful. Yeah. You know, I, I, oh, sorry. Sorry, I got to go. I got to get to my, um, my kids, but we should do this again. All right. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just drop me a line. Well, let's meet again after the holidays, if you don't mind. Okay. That would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Drop me a line after the holidays and, and we'll do it again. I'd love to, I'd love to continue our conversation. Okay. Great. All right. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and learned a lot. Stay tuned for our next episode.